Hello, everybody. Welcome to Chapter 15 of Pochmancier. Sorry for this coming out so late. I am recording this <laughs> in Edinburgh, Scotland, uh, here in my flat on West Preston Street, uh, just a stone's throw, literally a stone's throw from the park where Arthur's seat is. I should probably go climb that. I'm in the middle of my run of shows here at the uh, Edinburgh Fringe Festival, so forgive my voice if it's a little round the bend in parts of this, but uh, yeah. I hope this finds you all well, and this is now a two-continental podcast, which is fun. Boschmansier, a novel by Strangely Duisburg, read by the author. Chapter 15, Mice and Dust. Time is such a curious thing. It never seems to flow along at a set pace. One minute you cannot imagine that a month or even an hour will be over. The next, you look up, and you've not seen your best friend in three years. The passage of moments is so subject to the experiences being had, if one is overwhelmed with sadness, or worse still, joy, time can stretch and snap, a day seeming an age, or an eye blink. Because of this phenomenon, it is hard to judge how long our new-met friends continued in uninterrupted happiness. Halcyon days are always so much clearer when viewed through the lens of present troubles. For our little band of wanderers and shopkeepers, things took a turn, one quiet afternoon in late November. When Slice escorts Eleanor and Kells into the bookshop, Martin eschews his usual split-visioned assessment. Instead, he puts down his book and rises to greet them, warmth filling his voice. Kells jumps up to slug the bookseller in the shoulder. Eleanor, who has since learned of Martin's peculiarity of the heart, elects to give him a simple nod. Slice disdains all greetings and leaps up onto the counter, intent to lounge on Martin's portable computer. They speak for a time in the way of fast friends, Subjects of no consequence carrying the weight of love and affection. Even Slice seems interested for a time, but the cat's attention is soon diverted by something deeper in the shop. But it is nothing. The cat sniffs and licks a paw, considers going to sleep. Then the noise returns, a tiny clicking. Slice stands, body coiled. Without a sound, Slice flows off the counter and streaks across the shop, intent on something behind a row of shelves. The whispered tread of the cat disappears off into the stacks, only to reappear again moments later near the front desk. Now wait just a moment, let's go. Martin drops the book he has just picked up as something small and gray comes streaking from around the end of an aisle, Slice in determined pursuit. The cat is now hissing, an almost inaudible sound like a punctured bicycle tire. Around and around and up and down, sometimes along the tops of shelves, sometimes across the floor they go. Everywhere the thing darts, the cat is right behind it. Is that a mouse? Says Kells, needling. Martin, I would have thought your shop was cleaner. Adlin's place, maybe, but... The mouse, if that's what it is, appears from the end of an aisle. It freezes and turns toward them with eyes too large and too black to be real. The two wide jaw lolls as if panting, though the tiny chest is not puffing. It regards them for a moment. Eleanor feels a twist in her stomach. 
as though she has just made eye contact with someone. But it's a mouse, she thinks. Silent as a flake of ash, slice drops down from atop a bookshelf, claws slashing. With an angry screech, the cat rips the mouse nearly in half, spilling its innards about. Kells gasps, and Martin faints dead away. Eleanor only just manages to catch him and lower the swooning shopkeeper to the floor. Slice hisses at the dead mouse and then slinks over to a chair and begins to groom itself as though nothing had happened. Kells fetches a glass of water and helps Eleanor sit the befuddled Martin up. He thanks them, hiding his embarrassment well as he sips the water. Once recovered, he leads the way to inspect the destroyed mouse. What had seemed at first glance to be a fine mist of viscera turns out to be dark, gray sand. The grains of it are so fine that they look more like the ashes from a fireplace than something one would find along a beach. Well, it looks like this mount. Martin's voice stops. He looks pained, as though he may faint again. The color drains from his face as he pulls a pen out of his pocket to carefully poke at the tiny creature's remains. Are these? All three speak aloud in shaky voices, as if to speak the word alone is too troubling. Stitches. The thing had once been a real mouse, that much is now obvious. The animal was skinned and cleaned, the tiny pelt tanned in a crude fashion. Perhaps most ghoulish of all are the stitches along the underside, the grayish-brown thread holding the little body together. Whoever has done it has paid close attention to the color and tried to get it to match, but lying on the floor of the bookshop, it is unmistakable. What is it? Eleanor asks, curiosity overcoming revulsion. Some sort of robot? Clockwork? Kells suggests, perhaps too hopeful. Martin shakes his head, prodding around a little more. There is nothing inside the mouse but the dark sand. He sits back on the floor, crossing his arms, regarding the thing, breathing slow through his nose. Eleanor and Kells follow suit, and for a time all three of them sit, regarding the thing before them. They are startled when the dorsimer sounds its chord. A customer. The patron is staring at the three of them in obvious confusion. Martin bounces up to his feet and fastidiously dusts off the seat of his trousers. As he strides off to help the customer, he hisses at Kells. Sweep it up and put it in the office. We'll look at it later. Kells nods and dashes over to snatch the little dustbin and brush Martin keeps behind the counter. Eleanor is left alone with the mouse corpse for a moment, staring down at its tiny, beady black eyes. She bends close to it. It still seems to be looking at her. No, she thinks, no, it can't be. Did it just move? Or did she blink? Her heart begins to thump in her chest. She feels as though it isn't the tiny dead mouse staring at her now, but rather something else, looking out through those two black dots. Look out, dear, sweeps a-comin'. Kells' cheerful announcement breaks her reverie, and the feeling passes. Kells sweeps up the dead mouse, dust and all. She carries the tray back into Martin's office and finds a broad, flat, wooden box. With care, she dumps the mouse into it. Once, in another lifetime, Eleanor thinks, the box contained cigars. 
Something about that connection feels right, she muses. As the whole mess slides into the box, more sand slips out of the collapsed skin. In the center of the little pile, Eleanor can just make out a green button. A few nips of the same brown thread through its holes. To see such a mundane and ordinary object in such an off-putting place, Eleanor finds it more unsettling than the mouse itself. Kells has also seen the button. With an idle hand, she reaches for it. Just before her fingers touch the button, Eleanor catches her wrist. Don't! Eleanor's shout is too loud in the small room. Kells winces, and Eleanor lets go, realizing how hard she's squeezing. What is it? It's... Eleanor is puzzled. Why is she so afraid of such a small thing? I... I don't know. I think it's... Well, look at this thing. It's wrong. The stitches, the dust. Maybe it's an old cat toy. Kells stands on a chair and then lowers into a comfortable position, legs tucked underneath herself. She rests her elbows on her knees, her chin in her hands, looking into the box. Eleanor perches on the edge of the chair beside her. I don't think so. What we've got here is probably some sort of... Her voice trails away. She knows the word she wants to say, but it almost seems too easy, as if now that it is so probable, the sheer fact that it is possible is terrifying. Magic. Kells finishes for her, sounding more desolate than interested. They both stare at the thing in the little box, the button so conspicuous, bright green amongst the dark sand. Eleanor realizes she is holding Kells's hand without intending to. Outside the room, they hear Martin talking to the customer. Thank you for coming in today. I'm glad we had a copy of The Complete History of Barometers. I do hope your daughter enjoys it. For a moment, the mouse is forgotten. Kells catches Eleanor's eye and mouths the word, Barometers. They both snigger. The customer, still thanking Martin profusely for his help and promising to come again soon, exits the store. Eleanor is surprised that Martin does not come straight back into the office to examine the mouse with them. Instead, he walks away, toward the opposite end of the counter, and begins to dial his rotary phone. There's a great deal more rattling and bumping about than this should take. They can tell his hands are shaking, even though they cannot see him. After two false starts, there's silence as the phone connects. Martin squeaks, clears his throat with too much gusto, and then says, Adlin, yes, it's Martin's. Something's happened. Could you be so kind as to come here as quickly as possible? There's a pause. When Martin speaks again, he seems steadier already. Randy? (laughs) Yes, I should expect so. Four glasses, yes, they're here. All right, good. See you at four. (laughs) Martin hangs up the phone and walks away from the counter, out into the stacks, whistling a jaunty tune. Eleanor and Kells exchange a look. Is he avoiding the mouse? Kells asks. Eleanor smiles thinly. It seems so. I find it a bit unsettling, but not so much that I'm going to avoid it. (laughs) Me neither, Kells agrees, a bit quicker than she should. Adlin's reaction to the button only added to Kells' feeling of unease. 
Upon entering the office, the curiophile's already pale complexion had blanched pure white. The lid had been slammed on the tiny box, and a heavy book dropped on top of it. Brandy's passed all around, Adlin's and Eleanor's getting tossed away in a single gulp. Martin was still shaking so much that he almost spilled his. Eleanor had produced a small, elbowed straw, and the resultant laughter had calmed him down. Soon, Adlin and Martin were deep in conversation. Eleanor listening intently, her relaxed hands moving among her pockets. As the others talk, Kells wanders off among the stacks. Regardless of what the mouse is, and what they decide to do about it, she has had enough of it for now. Kells has always had a difficult time adjusting to unsettling things. She needs time to be alone, to think, to decide how she feels. It can be almost impossible to know how you feel about something if you're surrounded by other people expressing vehement feelings about it. The mouse, she thinks, qualifies as unsettling in the extreme, not to mention the possibility that it is magic, part of her wants to say. She pushes it down. Wanting something to take her mind off of her thoughts of dark magic, she begins browsing the shelves, brandy in hand. Kells already knows the stock of Martin's fantastical fiction section, an area comprising fantasy, science fiction, and those difficult-to-classify works which seem to be both, and neither. Her fingers once again begin their tracing way along the spines, something she now realizes is very similar to Eleanor's steady movement through the pockets of her coat. At both ends of the aisle she is walking down, Martin, or one of the assistants he engages on occasion, has set up a facing pair of mirrors. This gives the aisle the illusion of infinite length curving off into some far distant region well beyond the realm of sight. It is an old practical illusion to be sure, but an effective one. Kells holds out a hand and waves it up and down, trying to catch multiples of herself, but only sees the single reflection. How extraordinary. Where are you? She says aloud to no book in particular. Kells takes a deep breath, closes her eyes for a moment. Yes, this way. She walks down to the end of the infinite corridor and turns right for no particular reason, her fingertips still running along the books, making a soft noise. When she passes another customer, she switches to the other side of the stacks and continues. Time slips away as her entire awareness becomes the slow ebb and flow of titles and spines. The various muted reds, greens, blues, and gray-blacks that binders seem to favor. So many of the books lack dust jackets, as Martin is of the mind that a tatty dust jacket looks much worse than a plain binding. Once again, we see the beginning of a thread of information which leads into another secret economy. Let us pull it for a while and see what happens, if only to give Kells a true moment alone. Martin saves every unused dust jacket with care in a large trunk at the back of his office, arranging them by color palette. Once a year, on the evening of September 16th, Martin takes the trunk, now brimming with paper, to a small shop several blocks away. This store makes and sells piñatas, 
and various other paper mache items. Invariably, the owner invites him in for a drink while the trunk is unloaded into a large bin for sorting. Martin long ago learned that these visits are anything but short, often lasting long into the small hours of the night, as beer and later tequila flow freely. In exchange for this trunk full of paper, Martin receives several bottles of a particularly fine orange liqueur, which the owner of the piñata shop produces as a hobbyist. Years ago, Martin had encountered a bottle of this liqueur and managed to track down the maker, who insisted that it was not for sale. Martin, being clever in the way of such things, found something he had to trade, and an unlikely friendship was born. Of even more value to Martin is the fact that Adlin is partial to orange liqueurs. The curiophile is always willing to exchange a small favor for a tot or two of Martin's reserves. Kells, of course, knows none of this, but as she makes her way through the store, she feels she is getting closer. The steady f- her fingers slows, then reverses back several books. Her hands have come to rest on a large volume, the collected letters of a near-forgotten, long-dead author. Well, this isn't exactly my cup of tea, says Kells, pulling the book from the shelf. She regards the bland cover for a moment, and then shrugs as she walks over to one of the many reading chairs that fill the shop. As she settles down, Tucking her feet up once again, something falls out of the book. Two envelopes, handmade from plain brown paper, perhaps butcher's, or a grocery sack. They have been covered with elaborate drawings of swirls and spirals, vines, flowers, and birds. She stares at the pair of envelopes for a long time. Both are addressed simply, K. Finn Island, Salish Sea. There are stamps and postmarks, but no other address information. She is overcome with a pull to open them, to read them, to know what they say. Such beautiful envelopes must contain wonderful things. And besides, she thinks, these letters could be for her. Though it is a flimsy excuse for her sudden urge to voyeurism, curiosity wins out and she opens the one with the earlier date, some thirty years ago, and begins to read. Hey everybody, uh, so this week's chapter and next week's chapter were originally one chapter, and one of the reasons that this is coming out late is that it was huge. I, I don't remember it being so big when I wrote it, but it was something like 7,000 words. So I've split it into two episodes, just for my own sanity, and... <laughs> Also, to get, spare my voice a little bit, there's a lot of uh, there's a there's a different sort of vocal thing that I use in the next chapter that you'll hear next week, and you'll understand why I needed to give myself some time off <laughs> while recording that character. Uh, thank you so much for listening to this. I know my releases tend to be a little sporadic just because I'm on tour, and this summer has been one of the busiest of my life. Uh, you know. Uh, here at the Edinburgh Fringe, I've been here for about a week, a week and a couple days, and I've already performed in over 30 shows. But uh, I managed to kind of carve out some time to work on this, which uh, 
yeah, I, I hope you like it. If you're into this sort of thing, please head over to strangelyandfriends.com or patreon.com slash strangelywritesbooks to find out different ways that you can help support this kind of art and, you know, encourage me to keep making this sort of thing. That's all for this week. I will see you next week for chapter 16, Two Letters, Two K. Into the box, more sand slips out of the collapsed skin. Collapsed skin. <laughs> Trust in me. Collapsed skin. Collapsed skin. Out of the collapsed skin. Out of the collapsed skin. Collapsed skin. Collapsed skin. <laughs> Slip into silent slumber. Sail on a silver mist. Slowly but surely your senses will cease to exist. <laughs> I have to be careful. I'm going to start sounding like uh, Mademoiselle Emerald. Oh my goodness, coffee. I need more coffee. Yes. Collapsed skin. <laughs> oh my God. Oh, jeez.